Hello and welcome to the Global Insight from Control Risks, the global specialist risk consultancy. I'm Claudine Fry. And I'm Charles Hecker. And this is the podcast where we try to explain what's going on in the world and what it means for business. There is one issue dominating the news and dominating much of our work with clients at the moment, and that is the Russia-Ukraine conflict. But one aspect of the crisis, which I think is among the less understood over the longer term, is its impact on energy. I think everyone has a sense already of the impact on prices of oil and an expectation of some disruption to supply. But there's much more complexity to the situation and much more uncertainty about how it's going to impact on energy transition over the longer term as well. I think what we want to do in this podcast is take a step back from the day-to-day accounting of the conflict. The longer-term impact beyond price includes, as you just mentioned, the energy transition. It includes national energy strategies. It includes a breaking of the dependence on certain sources and certain types of energy. And all of that will play into business, will play into politics, and the increasingly complex relationship between the two. The energy crisis precedes the start of the conflict in Ukraine. We already existed for a number of months in the environment where the oil prices and the energy prices overall, gas prices in Europe, of course, have been rising as a result of increasingly tight market in which the key energy producers, of which Russia, of course, is one, have been trying to keep up with the growing demand for energy on the back of the end of the COVID pandemic. That was Oksana Antonika. Oksana is a director in our Global Issues Group within our Geopolitical Risk Consultancy, and she's taking the lead in some of our commentary on Russia. Oksana, energy has so far been largely excluded from the sanctions that have been imposed on Russia in the wake of developments in Ukraine. How long will that continue to be the case? Of course, uh, the energy sector in Russia has been viewed, you know, ever since the start of this conflict as a potential target of sanctions. And it is understandable because, of course, the Russian economy is primarily dominated by its commodities production, even though, you know, Russia has been in the process now of trying to diversify its economy away from dependence on oil and gas. But really since 2014, the last major crisis in Ukraine and sanctions by the West, Russia's dependency on oil and gas exports only increased. And therefore, of course, both United States and the European Union and G7 countries had, you know, Russian energy sector very firmly in their sight when they were crafting the response to Russia's intervention in Ukraine. However, so far, we've seen energy sectors being one of the few which actually did not produce a complete uniformity of response and kind of solidarity and unity of response from various you know, members of this you know, Western alliance you know, to try to support Ukraine in the current crisis. The United States has already introduced or was the first one to introduce major sanctions against uh, you know, Russian energy 
imports, you know, so it banned on the 8th of March all imports of Russian oil, oil products, as well as, you know, natural gas. We've seen some sanctions already applied on some aspects of Russian energy sector. For example, European Union and United Kingdom have applied sanctions in relations to technologies for Russian oil refining. We also, of course, seen sanctioning of certain Russian energy companies. But where I think so far we've seen little immediate action is from the European Union in terms of abruptly ending the imports of oil and gas from Russia. And that, of course, is clearly understandable because Europe remains very much dependent on both oil and gas imports from Russia. And this kind of abrupt ending or suspending of those imports is going to likely produce, you know, quite substantial immediate economic shock to Europe. But that doesn't mean that Europe is not doing something to prepare itself or providing opportunities for itself to apply those sanctions in the future. Oksana, let's pause on Europe just for a moment and think about what that continents, what that entity's position was prior to the most immediate spike in the crisis, and that was that Europe was driving the global transition towards green energy. Will we see political will and economic resources behind the energy transition increase? How quickly can the transition accelerate? Can it only move at the speed of technology? Or is there a chance that we'll backslide? I think what we need to think here is about the timeline. Clearly, in the short term, the priority within the European Union in particular has shifted now away from prioritizing the you know, climate mitigation, the emission reduction objectives over prioritizing now energy security objectives. The European Union so far was able to articulate mostly a, a medium-term strategy of how to deal with this energy security dilemma that they're facing at the moment. The intention now is to reduce the dependence on Russian gas imports by about two-thirds by the end of this year, which is extremely ambitious and very expensive objective. But on top of that, of course, you know, European Union is also now taking steps to reduce its dependence on Russian oil imports, which are still very substantial. So, yeah. Europe is still receiving about 35% of its oil from uh, Russia. And this is the sector where potentially European Union can diversify much faster. And of course, European Union, also European countries, you know, have at the moment some uh, oil in its uh, storage and uh, that it will be able to uh, use, at least in the short term, to try to mitigate against potential, you know, supply disruption or supply risks. The big challenge on oil is that European Union countries are very uneven in terms of their dependency on Russia. So several countries like Finland, for example, like Austria or Bulgaria, depend more than 75% for their imports of oil on Russia. So for them, you know, really phasing out this dependency is going to be a very major undertaking. Germany is also a very key player here. It still depends very substantially on imports of Russian oil. And here, the important priority should be to try to quickly implement sort of technical solutions for its oil refineries that are currently mostly uh, uh, adjusted to receive Russian Urals oil to be able to start receiving a different kind of oil from the Middle East or from, you know, um, Africa and other uh, producers, which would allow Germany to reduce its uh, imports of Russian oil in the short term. But uh, if we look at 
over the horizon, perhaps more kind of medium term, it is very clear now that there is a very strong commitment from the European Union to reduce its dependence on all Russian energy imports, particularly oil and gas. But we have to also perhaps mention coal here as well, because European Union at the moment receives almost 40% of its coal from Russia as well. Over the course of the next five to eight years. And at the moment, the language in the EU strategy is well before 2030, which is, of course, a much more accelerated schedule than was envisioned before the crisis. And Oksana, we have the winter weather easing over the next few weeks. It's going to be much warmer across Europe. Presumably, there will be much less anxiety about disrupting supplies from Russia after the weather has warmed here. Could that prompt a change of direction from Europe? Yes, but it is also important for Europe to start now planning for gas in its storage to prepare for the next heating season. And this preparation is going to start from a very low base because clearly at the moment in the European gas storage facilities, we have now well below the kind of levels of natural gas that usually are in those facilities at the end of March. So they would have to put in much more to catch up with those delays to be able to arrive towards the second half of this year when the next heating season starts, you know, with a much more uh, energy security. Uh, And uh, it is not very easy to replace this gas, which is primarily being at the moment imported via pipelines from Russia with the alternative, which will be, of course, mostly liquefied natural gas, which will be arriving into Europe via the LNG terminals. You know, some of them are yet to be built. Therefore, you know, for Europe, yes, maybe summer in the short term provides certain relief, but it is really about planning for the medium term where the priorities of uh, policymakers at the moment are focused on. So, Oksana, we focused a bit, quite a bit there on Europe. What about moving beyond that? Give us your take on how some of the other big global players are viewing the impact on the energy energy markets as a result of what's happening in Ukraine. OPEC, certain members are have been under particular pressure from the US to pour efforts to contain price rises. Give us your view on, on what's going on within OPEC. Yes, the OPEC so far had prioritized the kind of stability and unity within this OPEC plus grouping, which was formed following, as as you remember very well, this energy crisis at the beginning of the pandemic, where Russia and Saudi Arabia, the two largest oil producers in the world, were really involved in what can only be described as a price war. And this experience has been extremely bruising for all the major oil producers around the world, not only those two countries, but also others who, you know, experienced very high price volatility. And therefore, you know, still to this day, want to prioritize unity and kind of gradual exit from the agreed schedule of this, you know, reduction in uh, output, which, you know, followed the pandemic cycle. At the same time, of course, Saudi Arabia in particular and UAE and other major producers are, if not under pressure, but at least they are hearing from the United States, from the European Union, from other major consumers that they would want to see those producers stepping in and and ensuring that we are not going to see you know further you know very substantial oil price increases which of course is going to have a detrimental effect over you know the economic recovery more globally but also can compensate for the potential disruption in in oil and gas supplies should the crisis in Ukraine then lead to actually disruption of supply which so far we have not seen and and so far we have not really seen 
any kind of clarity of response from the OPEC producers. Yes, on one hand, they want to be seen as you know helping and providing reassurance to the global oil markets to prevent this price volatility. On the other hand, I think there is a lot of concern that number of OPEC countries, smaller ones in particular, are not able to produce even at the level that OPEC plus agreement at the moment is allowing them to produce. And that is because during the pandemic and even several years before that, in the context of the energy transition, major oil producers have substantially underinvested in the new production. So now we're in a situation where many oil producers are not simply able to very quickly increase production. And therefore, the, the oil market is going to remain very tight. But as time goes on, and as the European Union in particular, you know, reduces its dependence on Russian oil and dependence on Russian gas, clearly other producers will be looking to take that very attractive and important market, which has been for many, many years in decades dominated by Russia. So in that sense, the Middle Eastern producers clearly will be eyeing the uh, European market. And um, so will, of course, the US producers that are now increasingly increasing their, their production following the you know, substantial increase in oil uh, prices. So, so in the short term, yes, OPEC is likely to be prioritizing cooperation and 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 stability. But perhaps, you know, in a few months' time, we might see much greater dislocation and and tensions among the major producers. We've naturally gravitated towards some of the most prominent actors in energy markets and in the politics of energy. But things can get even more complex when you go outside the United States and the European Union. When you see Washington approaching Venezuela, you have to start scratching your head a little bit. So yes, Chuck, absolutely. We are now in a situation where United States have to look uh, well beyond its traditional uh, partners in OPEC for the ways to bring more oil to the market, to be able to put additional pressure on Russia in the context of its actions in Ukraine, but also at the same time to ensure that pressure and those sanctions do not produce very high prices at the pumps for United States, because of course, United States is going into the midterm elections very soon. So we've seen, you know, two strategies at the moment being tried very tentatively. One is to reach out to Venezuela, and perhaps that was a very, very tentative discussion, which then been publicized. And we've seen the United States very much backtracking from that because clearly U.S. interests vis-a-vis Venezuela and its leadership go well beyond just the objectives that the United States now has to ensure, you know, that more oil enters the global market. Another issue, of course, is Iran. This is where I think United States at the moment, of course, is driving this whole discussion about reviving GCPOA with Iran, uh, reaching agreement on lifting some of the sanctions on Iran, which could deliver this needed additional substantial volume of oil to the global markets. But here, the United States has to contend with the fact that Russia is also part of the process. And Russia sees and understands you know, what the United States is trying to achieve there and therefore trying to put additional obstacles from Russia's side. And we've seen, of course, Russia demanding that as part of this GCPOA revival, its interests vis-a-vis exporting its own oil are taken into account. And here, of course, potentially that uh, approach could really put the whole GCPOA revival process you know, on hold. Oksana, if you don't mind me asking, what is more important to Russia? Delaying Iran's emergence as a nuclear power or delaying Iran's reemergence as an oil exporter? 
Remember that WikiLeaks actually disclosed a certain information about the U.S. perception of Russia's position on the original GCPOA negotiations. And from those leaks, we have seen really that Russia has been skeptical about the GCPOA even in its first, you know, original reincarnation. And even though Russia has been part of the process of the agreement being concluded, it has never been at the forefront of championing this deal uh, in the first place. I think today Russia finds itself in a situation where its concerns about its economic survival, its concerns about continuing exercising certain geopolitical leverage, not only in Europe, but also broader in the Middle East and GCPOA kind of process gives Russia the seat at the table. It is the situation where perhaps it doesn't have many seats at the table left at the moment. It gives it an impression that it has leverage either on Iran in this case or on the West. And if the GCPOA is revived and we are seeing an agreement reached, perhaps Russia's influence and ability to put its interest on the table are going to be substantially reduced. So in that sense, it's maybe it's a fair question, Chuck, you know, and I think that at the moment, Russia will prioritize its interest vis-a-vis, you know, oil and other exports and ability to secure revenues from those exports over, you know, nuclear non-proliferation and Iran's ability to advance further and perhaps irreversibly towards acquiring nuclear weapons. There's more at stake as a result of the Russia-Ukraine conflict than the future of energy. We're talking about political risk. We're talking about operational risk. We're talking about reputational, cyber, and geopolitical risk. One of our most readily available tools is a twice-weekly monitor that provides an opportunity to get the latest intelligence and analysis from our team direct to your inbox. Everything you need is in the link in our podcast notes. When I think about the energy transition, three thoughts come to mind, and I wonder if they're mutually compatible or mutually exclusive. The first one is that the political stimulus to accelerate the energy transition should grow. Secondly, that should be followed by economic firepower. But then I wonder, can the transition really only travel at the speed of technology? And what happens when a lot of the technology that's required is dependent upon exports from places like Russia. And then finally, I'm concerned about backsliding. And that is that we just throw more coal into the furnaces. I think, Chuck, you're absolutely right that, you know, the energy transition has been to a large extent driven uh, by the private sector. For the private sector that is advancing both the investment in renewable energy, but also in technological innovation and in advances, the current crisis that is playing out and the increasing prices in conventional you know, oil and gas energy is something which is going to generate more demand for investment and more technological advances. So here, I don't think we're going to see much of a disruption. You know, if we are looking at the same time at the regulatory environment, which is another major driver of energy transition. Again, I think the current crisis is going to stimulate countries all around the world, not only in Europe, but many other parts of the world, to really look very carefully at how they can create uh, a regulatory environment which could generate you know, more uh, and faster energy transition. Where perhaps we will find more difficulty as a result of this uh, crisis now is in the ability of you know, major 
economic powerhouses like European Union to be able to put a lot of financial resources behind prioritizing energy transition over you know, immediately ensuring the energy security. And this is, of course, going to be just a very short-term deviation, so to speak, from the pathway towards you know, energy transition and, and overall accelerated energy transition. But undoubtedly, in the course of the next year or two, we are likely to see more money flowing into ensuring the stability of energy supply, ensuring that we do not have disruption, ensuring that Europe is no longer beholden in such a large extent on imports of oil and gas over you know, uh, Europe meeting in accelerated fashion its, you know, green energy transition goals. But once those goals of ensuring energy transition are secured, and again, European Union's uh, uh, plan at the moment is to reduce, for example, dependency on Russian gas by two thirds by the end of the year, which is, you know, massive, massive progress. So we are really talking about 2023, 2024 is when Perhaps we can return back to this priority being given to the you know, green energy investment, green energy transition in, in a way which actually is not going to put the security of energy in Europe at risk. And, and let's be clear, that energy security is also about making sure that political stability is assured and socioeconomic te- tensions are contained, isn't it? I mean, there are going to be enormous pressures on many societies around the world, which are partly linked to very sharply rising energy costs, which of course were something that were in play even before the Ukraine crisis erupted. That's right. I mean, I think that the traditional way that we were looking at the impact of the energy transition was what would the impact be on exporting countries? What would the impact be on consuming countries? And for consuming countries, we saw this as a boom. For exporting countries, we saw this as a risk. Oksana, under that sort of framing of the issue, one of the countries that we think about often with respect to its status as an exporter at risk of political instability is Angola. One of the other countries that we think of as exposed to an elevated level of risk because of its status as an importer is Turkey. Tell me what you're thinking about those places. Yes, the producers uh, today are finding themselves in a situation where the demand for oil from smaller producers like Angola or, or like uh, Nigeria or, or Iraq, for example, are going to increase. The big question there is to what extent they will be able to produce the necessary you know, amount of oil. Uh, and for many of those countries, you know, it will just be very difficult to very quickly increase the production. So they would want to attract more investment and perhaps more investment will be coming. But then if we're talking about the energy transition. So if this investment is only going to deliver more oil in the space of the next five to 10 years, whether this oil will be needed in the market. So this is really the dilemma for some of those, you know, smaller producers. They can maybe attract more investment now under the assumption that oil price, in fact, will be higher than we anticipated. But, you know, by the time this investment pays off, they might again find themselves in a situation where oil prices will drop once again. For countries like Turkey, it is now a challenging environment because both the oil price and the gas price, you know, continues to be very high, you know, while at the same time, Of course, you know, Turkey finds itself uh, in a situation where, you know, its position, you know, that it's been working on for a very long time is being the major energy hub into Europe. So it's positioned itself as an alternative in a way 
to Russia, but in a very interesting way because it's it's positioned itself as an alternative to Russia by actually leveraging Russia's oil and gas because it's now built you know two major pipelines you know the uh, you know the Turk Stream as well as of course the uh, the Blue Stream so it takes a lot of Russian gas into Turkey and then it wants to then supply that gas to Europe. You know, it also takes, you know, gas and LNG from other suppliers and wants to use it not only for domestic consumption, but also to sell it to Europe. But as relationship between Russia and Europe deteriorate, to what extent Europe will be prepared to take Russian gas, not from Russia, but from Turkey? Or will Europe not be prepared to take any Russian gas at all? It's fascinating to think about the regulatory driver being unchanged and the driver that is the private sector innovating, not being derailed. So you've got those two key drivers of energy transition being intact, despite what's going on. And therefore, within a couple of years, potentially we could be, we could be back on track with respect to energy transition. But it sounds like governments in the West are going to be facing some really tricky challenges, aligning that momentum on regulatory change, which is accelerating a push towards renewables, with their foreign and defence priorities. So that tension between the policymakers on energy transition and the foreign and defence interests are fundamentally not going in the same direction at some point. Do you see what I'm saying? Well, I mean, I think, you know, the whole sort of security strategy read large at the moment has really changed. I think it's very interesting to look at what NATO's new strategic concept is going to be like. You know, it's about to be debated and approved in the summer. Clearly, on one hand, we are moving towards, you know, NATO and, and uh, returning back to its basics, so to speak, to its territorial defense priorities, very much kind of strengthening the spending on, you know, capabilities, forward deployment. But at the same time, NATO is now increasingly aware that resilience, the societal resilience, the economic resilience is just as important as part of this kind of overall, you know, security of societies in the West as defense capabilities. And therefore, the energy security will be very much, you know, at the center of how the West in this new, you know, for the lack of the better analogy, Cold War, which we are likely to be in with Russia now for quite extended period of time envisions, you know, its uh, uh, priorities. And here, I think the energy transition, the ability of countries to quickly diversify sources of energy, the emphasis on Europe not only becoming self-sufficient in its, uh, you know, production of uh, a lot of, you know, energy from renewables, but also increasingly a driver of global regulatory trends and norms, as well as the global investment in technology and innovation is just as much now part of the security debate as it is today part of the economic and environmental policy debate or climate debate. And I think this is what can actually give that a real momentum. We've been having this conversation at a pretty high level. Let's zoom down now to the ground and think about the implications of what's going on in Ukraine on energy from an operational perspective. Oksana, what are clients asking you about? I think a lot of clients at the moment are really concerned to what extent we can actually have a major event which can have a, you know, serious implications and influence over the European energy market. Well, Oksana, are you talking about something like Russia just turning off the taps? 
Yes, Chuck, absolutely. This is one scenario that many of the governments and companies at the moment are worried about. And, and there are several reasons for that, of course. You know, one is that, you know, Russia at the moment is struggling with its uh, foreign reserves frozen and having no access to a lot of its uh, payments in dollars and euros to actually repatriate into Russia or use or access, you know, the revenues that Russia is receiving from continuing to supply oil and gas to Europe. So for how long will they be able to supply that without actually having an opportunity to access and utilize those funds? So will that then create a momentum or, uh, or decision which could lead to Russia deciding to stop the supply? Also, there are concerns about what is happening at the moment around the key infrastructure points, particularly in Ukraine. I mean, despite of all the fi fighting which is going on at the moment, you know, we still see Russian gas flowing through the Ukrainian pipeline transportation system. But clearly, we cannot entirely rule out that there could be something which can stop that flow uh, abruptly. Uh, of course, there's another concern uh, at the moment that many companies are talking about is that, you know, many shipping companies are no longer prepared to take Russian oil, even if that oil is not formally sanctioned, at least not by the European Union. So would that mean that for many of the European consumers, it will be very difficult to access not only Russian oil, but potentially Russian coal, you know, which is also being delivered to Europe. So a lot of those kind of short-term disruptions are still very much up in the minds of many uh, of our clients all across, you know, different sectors of the economy. Oksana, how is the Russian energy sector adjusting to what's going on? Of course, the Russian energy sector has been, to a large extent, dependent on attracting investment from abroad, you know, both investment and technology from abroad, to be able to sustain and modernize its uh, energy production. And not only in the oil and gas sphere, but also we talked about renewables. You know, most of the investment in Russian renewables projects about hydrogen were coming in the past from uh, from the West. And now, of course, we are seeing that most of the Western energy companies, you know, are either leaving the Russian market or certainly not going to be making any uh, new investments. And the big question mark, who is going to take their place? There's a lot of speculations that the Chinese companies uh, are uh, looking at the Russian market at the moment and might be taking uh, some of those or replacing some of those, you know, Western investments in some of the major projects with Chinese investment. Of course, that will probably imply that China will be more prepared to increase the import uh, of Russian oil and gas in the future. But perhaps the prices are not going to be completely international prices for those sales from Russia to China. And of course, new other players are now looking at the Russian market, India in particular, which has been a relatively small importer of Russian oil, but certainly a country where the demand for oil is going to continue to increase. And uh, we've heard from various you know, Indian uh, officials as well as businessmen that Russia potentially could be one area where India will be investing more and buying more. Oksana, I want to say thank you very, very much for your comments. We all know that the prices at the pump are rising. We all know that our heating bill is more expensive. I think what we knew less about prior to this podcast is the enduring long-term and broad-reaching implications of this crisis. And I just want to thank you very much for your comments on all of that. Thank you very much, Chuck. And thank you, Claudine, for this very interesting conversation. Thanks, Oksana. 
That's all for this episode of The Global Insight. Stay tuned with new episodes of The Global Insight every other week by subscribing wherever you listen to your podcasts. And be sure to check out our other podcasts as well, such as Legal and Compliance Insights, a monthly podcast that gives you a window onto the legal and compliance issues our experts are facing around the world. You can follow all of our analysis and find out how we're helping build secure, compliant, and resilient businesses by visiting controlrisks.com. The Global Insight is produced by Sam Tornio and Vicky Bufton. For me, thanks for listening and bye for now. And goodbye from me.